the word of the Lord. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Um, before we start the sermon, I just wanted to mention uh, a lot of folks have been asking uh, how Stonebridge might be involved in the relief efforts for Harvey. I know we've already prayed about that in the service this morning, but um, the, the deacons are strategizing with some, uh, some boots that are already on the ground there. And uh, we've got a couple of different scenarios that we're excitedly uh, connecting with, just some sister churches there and some scenarios. And I hope, I imagine that all of you watching uh, just all that's transpired in the last week have probably out of your hearts already given to the Red Cross or to other scenarios. I mean, this is a time for us to be a generous people. But um, if you're looking for a specific way to do that, you can send, uh, send it through the Deacon's Fund. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll be gathering money to, uh, uh, be, and we'll be able to tell you more st- specifically where that's going. But uh, we encourage you to do that. Uh, if you want, just uh, write the check out to the church, but on the memo line, write uh, Deacon's Fund, Harvey, or Harvey, or Hurricane, or whatever you want to write there so that we know where you want it to go. So make sense? Let's pray. Father, we want to commit this time to you. Um, you, uh, you say at the end of that passage that was just read, do you not yet understand? And we confess to you, Lord, all the ways in which we don't. Um, and yet, Lord, we want to come out of here with a greater understanding of what you're up to. Uh, we want to come away with a greater understanding of your, of your word. 
But even more than that, Lord, we want that understanding to equip us, that we would leave here encouraged in the gospel, motivated to, uh, to do the things, the works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. And so we pray that this would not just be understanding for us, but it would be paradigm for us, that it would, it would change the way we think about our lives and the world around us and about you, who are Lord over all of it. And so we pray, Lord, that these would not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I know that as Jen read that, uh, some of you astute ones were thinking, ah, no, we've already done this passage. We just, Heath just preached this thing last, last month, remember? Not so fast. This is, that was the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only slightly less well-known feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000 appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's, in fact, the only miracle, I think, that appears uh, in all four of them, apart from the resurrection. But... Um, uh, the feeding of the 4,000 only appears in, in Matthew and in Mark. And because it's so similar to the story from two chapters ago, uh, people who love to critique and dissect the Bible have critiqued and dissected the story and have said that this has to be some sort of bungled copying error that happened back in the day that would allow the same basic story to end up in the Bible twice. We don't buy that for two different reasons, for lots of reasons, but for two main reasons we don't buy that. First of all, uh, for all the similarities, there are plenty of differences. If this were being copied over as a scribist error, um, we would expect plenty of uh, similarities. We would see the same numbers, we'd see the same words used, we'd see um, the the same setting, but uh, we don't. They're, They're not the same. But the other one I think that's more telling is that when Jesus summarizes these events in the passage that Jen just read, uh, he mentions both of them as two separate events. And the main reason that critics uh, say that they can't believe that these could be two distinct stories uh, is because the disciples, this is funny, the disciples wouldn't have been so thick-headed the second time if they'd already seen Jesus do the miracle the first time because we know that that's true all the time, right? So here's the two, I mean, uh, at the end of the feeding of the, or in, leading into the, the first miracle, there's the question they ask, how, how can we do this? And uh, leading into this miracle, they ask the, basically the, the same question. One critic writes, the stupid repetition of the question is psychologically impossible, right? Sure, because you've never done it before, Right? I mean, no one could possibly see Jesus provide and then ever, ever question that he would provide again, right? Sure, right? No one would ever possibly see God show up and then ever doubt his existence again, right? Except for Abraham, Jacob, the nation of Israel, pretty much everybody in the whole Old Testament, and us on any given second of the day, right? We have a, a miracle amnesia, I thought was a, maybe a good way to describe it, right? We, we can see God part the sky today and we will forget him tomorrow, right? We can be, I mean, think of Israel in the wilderness, right? Read the book of Exodus. God can part the Red Sea and a week later you're panicked about where your next meal is coming from, right? We know that God has done things in our lives that would, should make us never question him again and yet tomorrow we will question him again. We do. Here, they're worried about food. I'm guessing that when you are feeling an anxiety over will God show up, it's probably for us, not usually about food. We don't worry about where our next meal is coming from usually, but uh, bread was life back then. 
I think we lose that today. 2,000 years have been really hard on bread's reputation, right? Um, bread, now we're carb-free, gluten-free, wheat-free, keto, paleo, Whole30, Atkins, South Beach, whatever. All these different scenarios where bread is the enemy, right? 2,000 years ago, bread was not... Uh, one menu item on a palette of options. It wasn't the little baguette on the side of your entree. Bread was the entree. That was it. These guys, Jesus multiplies what a few people brought for lunch. And what did they bring for lunch? They brought bread. That's what they brought. And and fish, uh, tuna fish sandwiches or whatever that might be, I guess. But as important as bread was, then that isn't what Jesus wants to talk about here. All this talk of bread and yeast is not the purpose. It's the means that God is using. It's the means that Jesus is is communicating to show something greater about himself. And and briefly, we want to look at three, uh, what I hope are bigger points this morning than just that idea of bread. And this is these three ideas, a wider plan of the gospel, a greater peril of unbelief, and a deeper perception of who Jesus is. I think that these three ideas, there's plenty more in this passage, but I think that these three ideas are are the way in which Jesus is is laying a a trail of breadcrumbs to show his authority and his divinity. A wider plan, a greater peril, a deeper perception. So first, a wider plan. And remember that Mark could have told a lot of stories about Jesus. There's plenty of material that he could have used. He's the shortest of the four Gospels. That means that he's the most selective in what he chooses. And so we have to look at this. When, when he grabs two stories where essentially the same thing happens, we have to ask, why did he do that? Right, what, what are the differences that we can see in those to understand why he might have put both of them in there? And so we have to look at the details. Obviously, there's some, there's some details I would call interesting, but probably not, not groundbreaking. There's uh, 5,000 versus 4,000. Actually, the, the 5,000 that, that Heath preached about last month, that was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So that crowd was probably 10, 15,000. It was a huge crowd, right? This one, it says it's 4,000, and those 4,000, it's, it's an inclusive number. It says there were 4,000 bodies there, people there. So it's a much smaller crowd. Um, a couple of things I didn't know until I started working on this passage, there's different words that are used here in the Greek for a couple of key concepts. The word fish is a different word in the first miracle and the second miracle. The word for fish in the first miracle is fish. It's fish. The word in the second one is uh, a, kind of a more technical term for little fish, probably the term sardines. So if you love sardines, yay for the second miracle, right? Um, Another, uh, that's, that's interesting. You can impress your friends with that knowledge. But the more interesting one to me is the word for baskets is different. The word for baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 is a basket that you would pass around, maybe kind of like the one that we'll do for the offering in a little bit, maybe a little larger. But the word for baskets with the feeding of the 4,000, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a trash can. It's, like, it's like, a hamp, like a laundry basket, okay? It's the same basket when it says that uh, the disciples snuck Paul out of the city by lowering him in a basket over the wall. So this is the kind of basket that you could put a person in, right? So that tells you when, you, when you're thinking about the, the basket full, seven baskets, Basketfuls of leftovers, think lots of leftovers in the second miracle, right? So those are all, those are interesting. But the biggest difference is this, and this is, this is the key difference between the two. Verse one says, it says, during those days, let me put up here, um, here it is, during those days, another large crowd gathered. So we have to say, during what days? Well, to get the context, we look back at the passage that Rick preached last week. Where is Jesus? Look back at the last story, and we'll see, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. 
down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. The other differences are interesting. This is enormous. Because up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've been trying to establish that Jesus is king, that he's authoritative. And if you remember, he's been, distra- he's been um, owning his kingship and his authority over different arenas of life. And you'll remember that um, he's shown his authority over disease, disability, the demons, teaching, nature. He's been establishing his authority in all of those areas, right? That's all been to a Jewish audience. But what did he do last week? Remember in the passage that Rick preached, he came in and he, he cast out a demon. Uh, he healed someone that was, that was deaf, right? And, uh, and now what we see is he's doing a weekend conference. He's doing teaching here. And uh, at the end of it all, he pulls the same miracle that he pulled to a Jewish audience. All of this is happening to a Gentile audience. He's taking the same show of power that he put on display for the Jews and he's taking it on the road to the Gentiles. Guys, that's huge. Remember last week talked about the Syrio-Phoenician woman who said, yes, I understand that you've come, Jesus, for the children of Israel, but even the puppies get the, the crumbs from the kids' table. And now we see literally that, that Jesus is taking the crumbs. He's going to 4,000 puppies and he's filling them up. Right? That's good news for us because we're the outsiders. <laughs> we're, we're the Gentile audience. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to, if you weren't here last week, I'm just going to point you back to Rick's sermon to ponder the details of that. But we're the beneficiaries of the fact that Jesus took his kingship outside the bounds of Israel and he took it to the world. It's a reminder to us also that those who now maybe we think of ourselves as, in a sense, the insiders, it's a reminder that God's doing something much larger than that. The fastest Christian growth in the world by nation last year was in Iran. It's believed that there are probably more Christians in China right now than there are in the United States. And so a reminder that the kingdom that Jesus is building is a kingdom of every nation and every tribe and every tongue and the feast that Jesus is preparing. I hope you like ethnic food because it's going to be very international, right? So the miracle reminds us of the wider plan of the gospel. The second is uh, this passage shows us the greater peril of unbelief. They head back to the west side of the lake after this miracle's happened, and uh, the, the miracle happened kind of on the southeast end of the Sea of Galilee. That's where the Decapolis is. They get in the boat. They go to the west shore, and the Pharisees are there to greet them. Yay, welcome wagon, right? So here's, here it is. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. That doesn't sound all that bad, but in the Greek, it's much more hostile than this. It's very confrontational. Um, they're not trying to start a dialogue or do some Q&A with Jesus. This, they're confronting him and they're saying, we want to see your credentials. They're not expecting any sign and they've already made up their mind who Jesus is. Instead, they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to show him for the fraud that he is. They're trying to show him as, as disqualified and as uncredentialed. And Jesus knows that whatever they're looking for, if he were to do it, they still wouldn't believe. A miracle doesn't prove that he's the Messiah. They've already told him that, well, yes, you've got some cool tricks there, but you're using demons to cast out demons. Remember them saying that to him? So if he ignores their request, then they can say, aha, see, you're, you're not the Messiah. But if he grants their request and gives them a sign, then they can just simply say, well, that, that's probably a demon you got there. You should probably get that checked out, right? They didn't want a sign. They just wanted an excuse, 
This, this is not in my notes. I'll just go off script for a minute. I remember, um, sit, I mean, I think this is us, guys, so often. Maybe there are some of you here today and you are, um, uh, you're here maybe against your will or you're here and you're checking it out. And granted, we're all on a journey. We all, um, there's, a, there's an arc to our story as God gets a hold of us and it happens often by degrees. But sometimes we're just waiting for uh, just one more sermon or one more answer to one big question we can't figure out or there's that one passage that we just need to spend, you know, just uh, once, once Leviticus is explained to me, then I'll, then I'll believe, right? We're always looking, we've always got some excuse, right? Um, I remember sitting on a park bench in Nashville a long time ago with a homeless man named Sam and we're, we're talking about the gospel and we're looking across at this uh, dirty vacant lot with this dirty um, wall, this, just this uh, brick wall and at one point he says, I just wish that God would just uh, spray paint on that wall and tell me what his will for my life is. And I said, wow, that would be awesome. Like, I would love a front row seat for that. But, you know, the thing is, is that he already has, like, spray painted his will for you in here. And I handed him a Bible and said, this is where he's already revealed his will for you. Sometimes we're just waiting for one more sign, one more piece of evidence before we believe and just be encouraged that, you know, so faith is, is stepping forward. It's, it, there is understanding to it. it the disciples are going to be challenged. Do you not see? Do you not understand? But there's also a sense of, um, you know, faith that requires absolute definitive evidential proof all the time that's not faith that's just veiled doubt and sometimes it's good for us just to throw ourselves in the deep end of the pool and see jesus hold us up right i don't know who that was for but there it is no extra charge right um so they get back in the boat and somewhere out to sea uh jesus says in verse 15 he says watch out he says beware Beware the, the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That is an unlikely pair. The Pharisees and Herod. Think about that for a minute. The Pharisees, they're the uber-religious ones. We've talked about them already. They're as religious as it comes. Herod, we've met a couple of chapters prior. Herod's the, the head-chopping, carousing narcissist that we met back in chapter 6. He is about as non-religious as it comes. And these two get put together, and Jesus says, watch out. Beware, right? Guys, that should absolutely have our attention. Jesus just said to you, beware, right? I mean, we, we, the word beware is meant to get our attention wherever you see it. Beware falling rocks, beware the eyes of March, beware of the dog, right? All of those things are meant to get our attention. But when God says beware, that is big neon sign, right? That raises the stake because Jesus is lumping these two polar opposites together. And then he's saying, watch out. What is he telling us to beware? He's telling us to beware yeast. And here's the deal with yeast. A little bit can infect the whole batch. And he's taking two opposites and saying, watch out for them, because a little yeast can infect the whole batch, right? A little dash of legalism can mess up your faith, can wreck your faith. A little dash of license, I'll do what I want, can also wreck your faith. We've said this before. You can, we say this often here at Stonebridge. You can reject Jesus by being very, very bad. Prodigal son, right? You can also reject Jesus by being very, very good. We don't often think of that, but think about it this way. This author I've been reading named Jared Wilson, I really like what he says here. He says, as the church exists to be on mission with Jesus to seek and save the lost, we have essentially three options to offer them. Religiosity, worldliness, or Jesus. Only one of these three actually saves men. Think of the Pharisees as option one, religiosity, right? Herod's option two, worldliness. He's being very, very bad. 
without Jesus. The Pharisees are being very, very good without Jesus. Trusting Jesus is something else entirely. But if we think, what's funny is we think there's only two options, right? Good or bad. And we think that, uh, if we think that, then we're going to look at one when we see it, and we're going to think that the solution to that one is a little dose of the other one, right? So, for instance, if you're too buttoned-down, religious, fundamentalist, legalistic, then we say, you know what you need to do? You need to loosen up a little. Take off that tie. You need to kick back a little bit. You need to get a little crazy. You need to soften up on all those rules. You need a dash of license, right? But if you're too worldly and sinful, then what do we say to you? Well, you know what you need? You need some rules. You need some structure. You need some morality in your life. You need to straighten up and get some religion, right? Now, let me be honest. There are some of you in here who need morality and structure and rules, right? That's not a bad thing. There are some of you in here who need to loosen up a little bit and not be so judgmental or uh, self-referential or whatever that might be, right? Those are not bad things, but neither of those adjustments is going to save you. Both of them are still a rejection of Jesus. One says, righteousness doesn't matter. I'll do my own thing. The other one says, righteousness does matter, and I can do it pretty well on my own, thanks. The second approach is the Pharisees. First approach is Herod, right? The Pharisees have boiled the whole essence of communion with God down to the word behave. They told us in seminary, I remember one of our professors saying, um, we have failed as pastors if the main take-home point from our sermon is be good. Because you guys don't need some, some form of try harder next week. That's not what we need. What we need is the, the gospel. We want to send you out of here empowered to live by the gospel. And yes, that might involve some effort, but that's not your take-home point. Your take-home point is the gospel says Christ is your righteousness. Live according to that. Don't live in your own have-it-your-way-do-what-you-want mentality, best wisdom, but also don't live in your own moral uh, smugness and superiority and self-righteousness. You're not good enough. You can't impress God with your righteousness. So Jesus says, for both of those, he says, beware. Beware the yeast that you're too bad to care. Beware the yeast that you're too good for Jesus. Beware. Huge neon sign warning, right? Beware. And what do the disciples do with that? Verse 16, it's awesome, their response. They discussed this with one another, and they said, it is because we have no bread. (laughs) The only points they get for this is that they actually decided to preserve this comment in Scripture, so that 2,000 years later, we can all look back at it and go, wow, that was a really dumb answer. Like, there's humility in that, right? That they would do that. But here's the third point. They need a deeper perception of who Jesus is. They missed the point of the warning. They missed the larger point, too, but they missed the point of the warning. They notice it, though, that they've got the details down pat. Jesus asked them some math questions, and they know all, they've got all the right answers for that. Oh, yeah, there were 12. Oh, yeah, there were seven. We remember all that. They were paying attention They've given the correct answers. What they don't know is what it means. What does this all mean? They're only able to be literal. They're not able to go abstract. My favorite quote from Guardians of the Galaxy, when when Rocket says, metaphors go right over his head. He says, metaphors would never go over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch them. I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie. It's great. We miss it too. We go way too literal on this. Jesus is asking for numbers, and we go at this, we go, well, maybe this is a word problem. So let me figure this out. There's 5,000 divided by 5 equals Jesus times 12x, and 4,000 divided by 7 equals, so solve for x. 
People actually do this. They, they, they think that there's some sort of code in here. There's some sort of numerology with this verse that 12, maybe that's the 12 tribes, and seven, maybe that's the perfect number of the Gentiles. And, and so what's the secret code that I have to crack here? And Jesus asks instead, he says, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And those, I put that up here, it's that's such an insightful and powerful question because what happened right before this? Jesus healed a deaf man. And if you peek ahead to next week, you will find that the very next story is that he does what? Jesus heals a blind man. And right in the middle of it, he looks at his own disciples in, in a setting where the deaf are hearing and the blind are seeing and he looks at them, his best 12, and he says, do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear. There, has your spouse ever told you this? You're, you're, you're hearing me, but you're not listening to me. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible thing to hear. I know, it's all right. Or uh, you're seeing, but you're not perceiving. That's what's happening, right? They've got all the right numbers. They've been there. They've paid attention. They've taken great notes. They don't know what it means. And so Jesus presses in a little bit. He says, remember, said this meal, let's start off with the basics, okay? Let's start off with the, with the very tangible right now in the boat. Guys, the meal with the 5,000 was a lot of people with a little resource and a lot of leftovers, right? And the meal with the 4,000 was less people and more resources and we had more leftovers. And right now, guys, there's 13 of us in a boat with a loaf. Do you think I can handle this? The issue is not who brought lunch, Jesus is saying, at least in in the moment, don't you think I've got this, right? But there's something bigger. What they're really missing is a much bigger point that's been looming for several chapters now. Um, If you go back to chapter six, Jesus has just walked on water and you remember this, I preached this a few weeks ago and he climbs into their boat and it says this, this is their reaction. It says, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about what? The bread, the loaves, what does that mean? It says their hearts were hardened. That sentence baffled me a month ago. I was sitting in my office. I share an office with Peter, and Peter saw me just going, none of the commentaries answer this. Like, I'm just trying to find, why the loaves? Because if it were me, I would have thought that it would have said, they're, they just, they're in a storm, they're rowing at the oars, they watch Jesus walk up, and, and, and he gets in the boat with them, and the storm stops, and I would have thought it would have said. They were completely amazed because they had forgotten about the time in chapter four when he did the same thing, right? But instead it says they were completely amazed because they'd forgotten, they didn't know about the bread. They didn't understand about the bread. And it says it again here, Jesus rehearses both of the bread miracles for them. He goes over all the numbers and he says, don't you get it now? Understand what's really going on here, he says, right? This, this bread thing that Jesus has done twice now, this miracle, is somehow the main key to everything that he wants the disciples to understand about who he is. It reveals something crucial about who he is. So what is it? I think it's as simple as one sentence, and we get that sentence from John 6. It's this, I am the bread of life. John uh, gives a fuller account of the dialogue that happens around the feeding of the 5,000. And we get a fuller account of the discussion that happened. And so we get the same sort of question, honestly, that the, this crowd asked the same question that the Pharisees asked in the passage that we just looked at. And I think it helps us understand much more what the Pharisees were asking, too. 
Listen to this. So they asked him, the crowds asked him, what sign then will you give that, they may, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Think about that. What has he just done? He just took five loaves and he fed 5,000 plus people. And they go, hey, could you give us a sign? Our, but here it is. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there it is, guys. Later on, two chapters later, if the Pharisees were looking for a specific sign from Jesus, I think this is it. It was believed that when the Messiah came, he would reinstitute the manna. Do you remember the manna? Read the book of, of Exodus and throughout, and you'll see manna was this, this miracle bread. It, when the Israel was 40 years in the desert, they experienced this sustained daily miracle, they, the, this honey-tasting wafer that was on the ground every morning, that bread from heaven. What was it? We don't know. They didn't know what it was either. They called it, what is it? That's what manna means. So they named it after a question because they didn't know what it was. The description to me, when it talks about this honey-tasting wafer, I picture Frosted Flakes. I think it looked a lot like Frosted Flakes. And imagine every morning you come out and, man, I mean, like, the ground is littered in frosted flakes. Like, as far as the eye can see in every... This is a good dream. This is awesome, right? As far as you can see in any direction, frosted flakes. There was a quartermaster general in the army uh, who worked in the desert, and he did the math on what it would have taken, most likely, for Moses to have daily rationed and fed the Israelites that were walking through the desert for those 40 years. And he said the number he came up with was about 1,500 tons of food a day to feed all the Israelites in the desert. Guys, that's 1,500 tons of Frosted Flakes. Think about that. Just psh, everywhere, right? I mean, um, I did the math on this, by the way. That's, that is uh, 3 million 16-ounce boxes of Frosted Flakes or if you go with the family size, a 20-ounce, that's 2.4 million boxes of fruit. You can check my math on that later. That's a lot of cereal. The point is, it's a lot of cereal, right? And it was believed that when the Messiah returned, the manna would return. Jesus would bring back the manna. So maybe when the Pharisees were asking for a sign, they had this specific thing in mind, and they just go, well, you know, great, you fed 4,000 people, one meal, awesome. Moses fed a couple of million people for 40 years. How about that? Do that and we'll believe. And verse 32 says, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, that's one of the amen I say, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Their response is this. They say, sir, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus has literally been leaving a trail of breadcrumbs to lead the disciples to understand fully who he is. If you want a Messiah who brings miracle bread, you've got him. From day one, he's been putting it out there, guys. He was born in Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It's the city of bread. From day one, this is what he's been trying to communicate, right? He's feeding multitudes. He's throwing it out there where the supply exceeds the demand. And he's telling people, you want manna? I'm the manna. The, disciple, the, um, the, the pastors dared me to say, you to manna from the pulpit. So there it is. You to manna. Just 
I just picked up that gauntlet and dropped it. There it is. So, <laughs> you, okay, that's, you will never hear that again. That's, and on the last night before the cross, he's taking bread and he's breaking it and he's saying this still, it's all about bread. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, right? And at the very beginning of his earthly life, Bethlehem, and at the very end of his earthly life, it's all about bread. The image is bread. He's the bread of life. It's beautiful. I think bread, what a perfect metaphor to picture who Jesus is because it's a picture of so many different things, right? It's a picture of, of provision. It's the meeting of our daily needs. You even pray, give us this day, Lord Jesus, our daily bread, right? It's a picture of satisfaction. We see that when he, he leaves the crowds full with leftovers on the ground because they're so stuffed. It's, it's a picture of not just bread of life, but abundant life, life to the full. And as we're about to remind ourselves when we come to the table here, it's also the bread is this picture of suffering and vulnerability. It's something easily broken. This is my body broken for you. And so that leads us, that leads us right here to the table. I'm going to go ahead and, and walk down there. But as I do, uh, as we prepare for communion, I want to try and sum this up with an illustration. You might have heard we had an eclipse a couple weeks ago. Did any of you guys hear about this? Yeah. They only hyped it for like a year. I'm curious how many of you actually drove into the path of totality. Just, would you raise your hand? I just want to see how many people did it. Okay, good. And um, we did, and it uh, was about an eight-hour drive for us. We could have gone to D.C. with that or maybe Florida. We went to Greenville, right? And it t- took us like four hours down, four hours back. We actually went to uh, Erskine College, my old alma mater, and we sat uh, on the the, the lawn behind my old dorm and we, my family, we watched it there, which was, was pretty cool. But you got to ask yourself, like for those of you guys who did it, I, some of you I know, I've talked to some, took them, tw- it was 12 hours of driving, whatever it was. And you got to ask yourself, I mean, this thing lasted two minutes, right? It's two minutes. That's it. Why would you drive eight to 12 hours in one day for a, a, a two minute thing? Because it was an awesome thing, Right? Why would you drive uh, uh, through bumper-to-bumper traffic and and all of that mess uh, for an experience that lasted about two minutes because it was two magnificent minutes, right? I'm not rubbing it in for you guys who just got to catch it a little bit from here, but guys, it was a 360-degree sunset. The sky went black. The stars came out. We saw Venus in the middle of the day. There's this aura around the the whole thing, and then um, you, you were able to take your glasses off and just get a sense of just where you fit in the solar system for a minute as you just stand there realizing that you're right in the line of the sun and the moon and, the, and then the sun peaks back out again and it looks like a diamond ring because you've got this halo and, and then this shiny thingy that pops out on the... It was, it was astounding. I talked to one guy who said it was the best two minutes of his life. It was, it was unbelievable. My kids, Timothy, who doesn't really even have his words together yet at age five, and who we didn't think understood a thing of what was going on, all of a sudden just starts going, the sun, the sun. Like he freaked out because the sun, like it wasn't there anymore, right? So it was, uh, even my five-year-old noticed it. It was, it was amazing, right? Now let me be, let me be frank. Guys, you're about to eat this. <laughs> um, if you skipped breakfast, this isn't going to help. And this will not tide you over till lunch, right? It's, uh, that's like an, less than an inch cubed of gluten-free, by the way. It's gluten-free. Gluten-free bread. Thought you'd like to know we've been gluten-free for a couple of years. All you celiac people, come on up. It's all good. So, Why bother with such a small symbol 
that we would gather monthly to put this in our mouth. Why bother with such a small symbol? Because it's a magnificent symbol. It pictures so much. It says that a man born in a city of bread would show that he could provide all of our earthly needs and beyond that, that he would provide for our greatest need, our need for forgiveness, our need for for being made right with with God. It pictures a body that's broken. We say that as every time that we, we distribute this, it pictures a body that was broken so that we could have life in him. It pictures, and this one's amazing to me, it pictures the, the promise or the foretaste, uh, the anticipation of a great feast, a real feast. It's just a little symbol of that, but it's a, it's a magnificent symbol. There's so much power wrapped up in this little thing. It's a trail of breadcrumbs, and it's meant every time that we take it to lead us back to the king, to lead us back to Jesus as the authority over our lives, as the king, and as the one that's worthy of every ounce of our attention, every ounce of our affection. That's what this picture is every time we take it. And we're about to do that now, but first let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come and, and meet us around this table. It's, uh, it's your table. Would you take these ordinary things? It, it could not get more ordinary than, than uh, juice and bread. But would you use them to picture something extraordinary and magnificent to us as we gather around this table that we would remember the body broken for us so that we could be in right relationship with you. When you come and meet, Lord, we know that you have uh, prepared for us a feast and this is a reminder of that feast, Lord, and while it's a small meal, it pictures a great thing. And so come and meet with us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, what, what this pictures is Jesus is for you. And so something important that we say a lot, and I hope this makes sense to those of you guys who maybe aren't coming from a Christian background or haven't given your lives to Christ, is when we take this, we're saying Jesus is for me. Uh, like I'm, I'm trusted, we're, that's what we're saying. That's what's pictured in this. So if, if you haven't come to that point yet of saying Jesus is for you, that's why we ask you just not to take the bread because it's, it's, picture, it's not picturing your, your faith. It's, it's something instead that we would encourage you to, to let the elements pass and ponder what would it mean if Jesus was for me? And what is the, the thing that's keeping me from that? Um, really do a soul search in your heart on that. But for all who have put their trust in, in Christ, this bread is a picture of, uh, of a great reality for us. And so we encourage you to come. I know last month we had people, we had tables and color codes and every, we're keeping it simple this time. Uh, we're just gonna distribute the bread to you. When you get the bread, take it as you're led. Uh, when you get the cup, would you just hang on to it? Because we're going to take that together as a picture of our solidarity and community and what God's building in his kingdom. Uh, but uh, let me encourage you, we are sinners, and we come to find wholeness. This bread and this, this cup pictures that for us. And we know that because it says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says, for as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us proclaim that with hope. Ushers, come forward.